Father in heaven, this is your word, and help us to behold this as your word, as the true and living word that boasts authority in our lives today. Help us to believe your word. Help us in our unbelief, whether we're in that or we struggle to believe, whether we doubt, whether we sometimes question your word as we seek to grow in your faith as believers. Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts this morning, encourage hearts this morning, so that the hands and feet of your people might walk in a manner worthy and that we might be holy as you are holy, as you tell us in your word here. So, God, we come to you boldly with reverent fear, yet humility and thankfulness because of Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let's pray. No, (laughs) kidding. Many of you, like myself, may have grown up hearing that common Christian phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This was popularized by a guy named Bill Bright and his gospel tracts with four spiritual laws, as he calls it. They were handed out in the 50s with these campus crusades for Christ. And now this phrase is true in many ways. But most people have ran away with this phrase instead of the massive truth behind this phrase. For one, it can give an overly positive view of the gospel. For instance, when people say, God loves you, what do they think of? Well, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. But they stop there. They don't quote the rest of that passage in verses 17 to 21 of John 3 when it talks about the light of the world is coming to judge and you better be on the right side, not in darkness. Author and evangelist Ray Comfort wrote a book titled God's Wonderful Plan for Your Life. And what he actually does is critiques that by by first illustrating the book cover as Act 7, Stephen, the martyr, getting stoned, Emphasizing that God's wonderful plan may not be the kind of wonderful that one tends to expect today. On the other hand, this phrase also leads to people quoting scripture out of context, right? People have usually thought of God's wonderful plan for your life with what passage? Jeremiah 29, 11. I was hoping someone would whisper or shout. Um, And they don't quote verses 1 to 10 when it talks about who it's writing to or uh, who the letter was written to, exiles from Jerusalem, right? And uh, verse 10 talks about God's plan to prosper uh, these exiles only after 70 years in captivity in Babylon or even the abundant life in John 10.10. And how that means a life of prosperity today. People have just ran away with this phrase and interpreted it differently than intended. And even the language for your life there at the end tends to minimize this big gospel to a person being saved rather than a people being saved. And while God's plan does include you and I, 
God's plan is much bigger than just you. But it's still for you. So it's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. And that's what this passage here this morning is all about. I titled it this way, God's Big Plan for You, in verses 20 to 21. And we're going to break this down into two main sections. I hope you have an outline in front of you that will help a lot. But the first observation under the first main section there, God's Big Plan, is the first three words in verse 20. He was foreknown. The most basic way to understand foreknown is to break down the word in reverse. Known before. And the first question to ask here is, Christ was known before by what? By who? If you look back at verses 1 to 2, 1 Peter, Peter uses the same language when he talks about these chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Verse 2. As in, these exiles were known before by God in such a personal way when He elected or chose them, and when He chose to love them and enter into a covenant relationship with them, as we gleaned from that particular sermon when we were in that part of the passage. And now, here in verse 20, Peter says, Christ was foreknown, as in Christ was known before by the Father in such a personal and loving way. And this begs the next question, Christ was known by God the Father before what? And the answer, Peter says, is before the foundation of the world, before the creation of heaven and earth, before Genesis 1-1. Before the beginning, before time even existed, Christ was known by the Father. We get a glimpse of this pre-existing relationship from eternity past in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays to the Father right before he was to die on the cross. Jesus says this, John 17 verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Not only was Jesus eternally existing with the Father, but he had this eternal glory with the Father before all time and creation, before the world existed. A couple later, uh, verses later in John 17, we find out more about this glorious relationship when Jesus prays for his disciples. Father, verse 24, I desire that they would see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's that language that John uses. And Peter picks it back up here and says that Christ was personally known and loved by God, the Father, before the foundation of the world when they enjoyed this glory that they had with one another before the world or time and space and matter even existed. This is... God's big plan. We're already seeing how big this is because it's even before time, before all things. And yet, Peter says, he was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. This almost feels like an interruption or a plot twist, as if something bad were to happen. But he was made manifest. But according to Peter's flow of thought, this is all in line with God's big plan from eternity past. In other translations, this word uh, made manifest is worded as appeared or revealed. So in connection to this glorious relationship between the triune God before the foundation of the world, Peter is saying that Jesus was made manifest to the world that was founded or created. God's big plan in foreknowing Christ in such a personal way from eternity past included Christ leaving his perfect home, leaving that perfect glory that he shared with the Godhead to come down to this created earth and take on a human body in order to be made manifest to that world. So now the question is, for what purpose was Christ made manifest to the world? Well, I hope you're thinking of the answer already. But in verse 11, Peter sheds light on this uh, when, when he talks about how the spirit of Christ in the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ. God wasn't surprised that the crafty serpent showed up in the garden in Genesis 3. Nor was he surprised when Adam and Eve were tempted and fell into sin because the Father foreknew Christ and that he would be made manifest to the world that was created because the created would sin against the Creator. And the Spirit predicted that Christ would suffer for the sins of the created, the world. From Christ's birth to his death on the cross where his precious blood would be shed, as we see in verse 19, as a perfect ransom for man's sin, Christ was made manifest to the world in order to suffer. And God knew that. Before all time, before all things, Christ was foreknown by the Father in their glory before the foundation of the world to be made manifest to the world to suffer as a ransom for sin. And when did this happen? Well, Peter says he was made manifest in the last times. Now, the previous idea was that Christ was made manifest to the world. So then we can understand this phrase in the last times as in the last times of the world. Right? Literally, we can read it as the last of the times. The world that was created in the beginning, time was created. Therefore, Christ was made manifest to this world where time began. And when Christ came, it was the beginning of the last times, in the last times. That's how we can understand that. Specifically, Christ being made manifest to the world in the last times began at his coming to the world. So Peter's saying Christ was made manifest to the world and that ushered in the beginning of what people would say today, the end of times, the end times, the last of the times, the last times of the world. 
In fact, many different translations, uh, as I found out this week, actually phrase this as in these last times, emphasizing the present tense, like in these last times, Hebrews 1-2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, the author says. And because these last times will end when Christ comes back a second time. That's the Christian hope, right? That, that our, our Savior would appear again. And Peter alludes to this in verse 5. If you look there, when he talks about this future and final salvation that is, quote, ready to be revealed in the last time. Singular, not plural. In the last time. So those are different words in the original language. So this future and final salvation that will be revealed in the last time is ahead of us. It's soon, but it's ahead. And here Peter says Christ was made manifest in the last times. You're in it right now. So when we see that phrase in our Bibles, we see that as beginning at the coming of Christ, even today until Christ's second advent or appearing or revelation as Peter likes to say in chapter one. I hope you're seeing how truly big this plan is. From eternity past, before the foundation of the world, and we could spend so much more time on this. God foreknew Christ to be made manifest, for us to see him and for him to appear to this world, take on a human body to live a perfect life and a sinless life to die and suffer for the sins of the world in these last times. But how does verse 20 even connect to what Peter has been saying in this section? So far, Peter's main command in verse 17 was to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That is, in these last times, throughout this life outside of your true home in heaven. Knowing that you've been ransomed from your sinful past by the precious blood of Christ, he was foreknown. How does that fit? What does God's big plan add to Peter's argument here? Well, to connect his flow of thought, we can say that Peter is saying, you must live in fear of the Lord because, one, you've been ransomed, you've been redeemed from sin, specifically from the sins of your forefathers, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay, so you've been ransomed, redeemed from sin and from your sinful past, and you were redeemed at such a great cost. Second reason, namely the precious blood of Christ. Now Peter adds his third and final reason. He says, live in fear of the Lord, because this big plan of redemption was no afterthought. God has planned this all along. This was God's big plan all along. And here it is, that the preexistent Christ would be foreknown by the Father in a personal and loving way before the foundation of the world when they enjoyed this blessedness and glory with one another without any need the Bible tells us that, Acts 17, they had no need, but that Christ would be made manifest, leaving his perfect home and perfect glory to humbly put on a human body and live as a perfect human, to die as a perfect ransom for man's sin, thus being made manifest to suffer in the last times. 
And not only was this God's big plan, but Peter strengthens his argument for this final reason as to why we should live in fear of the Lord. Because this was God's big plan, and here's the marvelous, stupendous words that Peter adds, for the sake of you. For you. It's our second big idea here. That last phrase in verse 20, God's big plan here is for you. Let that sink in for a moment. God foreknew Christ before all time in creation in their glory to be made manifest and suffer in the last times for you. Here this morning. Recall verse 5 when Peter talks about this living hope that God is keeping in heaven, here it is, for you. In verses 9 and 10, Peter talks about the very same thing when the prophets of old prophesied concerning this plan of salvation, which is the salvation of, verse 10, uh, verse 9, sorry, your souls. Or in verse 10, says the grace that was to be yours. And in doing this, the prophets were serving not themselves, but you. It's your privilege. Verse 13, Peter says that you must think of and set your hope, your hope, fully on this grace that was to be yours, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You included the Christian readers of Peter's day as well as Christian readers today which is you, plural, you and I. Peter hasn't left his point here. He really wants you to understand that God pre-planned this big plan of hope, salvation, and grace for you. Now to clarify, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that Jesus thought you were worth dying for as some false teachers unfortunately emphasize because they're captured by the will of the devil. When Christ died for you, yes, he was like a rose trampled on the ground. Yes, he took the fall, but no, he did not think of you above all. As that all too familiar song teaches. Rather, Christ was foreknown by God the Father, manifested to die in obedience to the Father. Because they didn't need anything or anybody. They were in perfect glory and blessedness and happiness. So Christ, when he came to die, he thought of the Father's plan above all. For your sake. There's the order, right? In that order. Christ thought of the Father's plan and obeyed for your sake. And Peter clarifies this order in verse 21 when he refers to who you are with a clear order of operations for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. That is, who through Christ are believers in God. And by saying this, Peter clarifies who acts after who. First, you who are believers only do the act of believing in God after Christ died for you. 
and after God foreknew Christ, before creation, that he would be made manifest to suffer and die for you. To put it the other way around, God, the Father, took initiative in sending Jesus to be made manifest, to suffer, die, so that you would believe in him as a result. That's how it becomes for your sake. That's how God's big plan becomes for you. As Jesus says in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. This is why in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says in verse 17, you call on him as Father who ransomed you. In verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, you only believe in God through Christ. And that's God's big plan centered on Christ, through Christ and his death for you to become believers in him. Yet his big plan doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end at Christ's death. So Peter expands on this statement. If we thought God's plan was big right now, it gets even bigger, right? God's plan is for you who are believers through Christ in God, in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Your outlines, it summarizes, in God who raised and glorified Christ. See how truly big this plan for you is? Think of verses two to three. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in verse three, according to his great mercy, that is God's, he, God, has caused us, believers, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does Peter feel the need to specify here how God raised and glorified Jesus right after telling his readers, you're believers in God through Christ? It's that simple. Well, and Peter's answer is because it's only through Christ and God's work through Christ, specifically God's work in foreknowing Christ, making him manifest to suffer and die, and raising and glorifying Christ, that God makes you believers in him. And in saying this, Peter implies that what God all did for Jesus, he will also do for you who are believers in him through Christ. To be specific, Peter is saying that God's big plan for you who through Christ are believers in God also includes you being raised from the dead and being glorified with Christ. That's what we just saw and celebrated this morning with Jenny. Now this might sound good and true, but this seems to be a harder pill to swallow for many believers today. When I preached on verses 6 and 7 in September, I received many questions afterwards, and I was very happy to receive them. But it was along the lines of the ideas, uh, uh, the idea of the believer's faith being rewarded and being found to, if you look at verse 7, being found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the question was this, so is the glory given to Jesus or the believer? I hope you're thinking of the answer. The answer is yes. Here in verse 21, Peter clarifies the order of operations when he states that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory, that is, at his ascension, when he was taken up 
to heaven after 40 days post-resurrection, which was super important for the faith of believers as we've been seeing in adult Sunday school. I encourage you to come out to that at 9.30 on Sundays. But this was in order for Christ to be seated. He was taken up to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father where he is right now, currently, with his perfect glorified human body. And one day, Jesus will come back in glory because he's already received it. He's already glorified But what's the point in him coming back? Well, for God to put all things in subjection under him, under his feet, but in order that we too might share in this glory so that he would come back for his people and glorify them and reward their faith. In order to share this glory with, as 1 Peter 2.9 says, we'll get to that soon, the purified people for his own possession. And that's the reward for Jesus' suffering. That's the prize for which he died. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, in whom? In the saints, in the people, the purified people for God's own possession. In short, Christ was raised and glorified first. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as the first fruits, so that you may also be raised and glorified with him on the last day, which is his, Christ's glorious inheritance. It's his prize, it's his reward for his suffering. Yet, even in that, Christ is magnified and glorified. Peter redirects us back to the main architect of this plan which is God, the Father. God was the one who was behind all of this since he has pre-planned all of this before all time and all things for your sake. God is the one who makes you a believer in him through Christ. Since God is the one who raised and glorified Christ. But here's the purpose. The last Phrase there, so that your faith and hope are in God. So that your faith and hope are in God. In essence, Peter is defining who believers in God are. Those who have faith and hope in God through Christ. But there the emphasis is on the fact that God took the initiative in all of this. Right, So that your faith and hope are through Christ, but in God. So that your faith and hope would be in him. He gets all the glory, and he gets even greater glory. How? Well, think about it. If the triune Godhead was perfectly happy in the glory that they had with one another before creation, they didn't need it. It's a really important thing. They, They didn't need anyone or anything. They were happy and satisfied and blessed, perfectly happy in glory before the foundation of the world. If that was the case, then what could be more glorious than that? Well, the Father foreknew before the beginning of time that his Son would step down from that perfect glory to be made manifest in the last times, to live as a perfect human, become the perfect sacrificial lamb, as the perfect ransom for man's imperfection and sin 
in order that he might be raised from the dead in his human body and be given glory with a perfected human body in ascending up to heaven as a perfect God-man, fully and truly, which is one good news for sinful man because his spirit descended after Christ ascended. And the spirit was the guarantee for what? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, it was a guarantee of resurrected and perfected bodies, or heavenly dwellings. For whom? For those who through Christ have faith and hope in God. Thus, number two, giving glory to Jesus on the last day when he comes to make his people like him as he's rewarded for his suffering, thus bringing glory to the architect of the plan, God the Father. So God's big plan for you who through Christ are believers in God results in him getting greater glory in the resurrection and glorification of Jesus who by his spirit or his power, as chapter 1, verse 5 says, is now guarding this glorious inheritance through faith so that his people, you, might be glorified with Christ on the last day. That's how faith and hope comes together. Faith is the experience, as the scholar says, uh, of present salvation, and hope is a future realization of God's people. That was the purpose of this big plan after all, so that your faith and your hope are in God through Christ, whom you believe. This is God's big plan, that Christ would be foreknown before the foundation of the world to be made manifest in the last times for you, for the sake of you, who through Christ are believers in God, who resurrected and glorified the risen Christ, so that your faith and hope are in him. And he gets glory and even greater glory. All of this is to the glory of God. So what does this look like for us today? That's Peter's third and final reason for why we should live in fear of the Lord, because we've been ransomed from our sinful past. That is the futile ways of our forefathers with the blood of Christ and because this was no afterthought. This was God's big plan all along for your sake. My first suggestion for this is to think big and live large. Now before you throw your apples at me, the fact that you might want to throw them means that you know what this phrase is associated with. When our culture says think big, It generally means to think about what you want to do with your life and do what it takes to get there, which is to live large. And I thought about this when I was driving around town this week, this last week, and saw some people renovating their newly purchased home. And in our North American culture today, to think big is to, what, land a good, steady job that you hopefully enjoy, then go to work each day and work hard, Okay, we pride ourselves with working hard, maybe even put in overtime hours in order to get that fat paycheck at the end of each month and buy what you need and want because you deserve it. You work hard. This might mean purchasing the big things like your dream home, maybe renovating it to your perfect home, maybe taking some money out of your fat savings account because you deserve a week or month to go somewhere around the world 
You know, the big things, right? And you're not necessarily hurting your bigger plans through your RESPs or your RSPs down the road. Think big, live large. I've only scratched the surface there, but a lot of these things may not even be bad in and of themselves. But the problem lies when thinking big is capped by those big dreams. For living large in this little life. And yes, I'm talking about unbelievers in the context of what Peter is saying here, but also for believers. Many Christians today, maybe even some of us in this room this morning might still be hanging on to these futile ways from our heritage that we've been bought from, that we've been ransomed from, as we were exhorted last week. In fact, I've noticed that with my own culture and heritage. Filipinos who emigrate from a third world country to North America also tend to develop this North American I deserve it attitude. Why? Well, you don't get much in a third world country. But now you have dollars instead of pesos and now you think big and live large by getting what you didn't have back then. And all your dreams are for your family and for your kids and for yourself, largely centered on your future here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, as Jesus says in Matthew 6. Sadly, I see this attitude within my own family and relatives who label themselves as Christians, and I once did as well. But what Peter is saying here in this passage for us is that if you, who through Christ are believers in God, you and I, regardless of your culture, Since you've been ransomed from their futile ways, whether that's your parents, grandparents, whatever it is, your culture, you must think big and live large, not along your culture's thoughts, but along the lines of what Peter and Jesus is saying to us today, because this is God's big plan for you. And it doesn't just end in this little life, nor did it start in this little life. This means that today, you who are believers through Christ in God, we need to think about how even before time existed, even before all things existed, the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally existed in this perfect love relationship with one another and enjoy the glory together. The very things we seek for in this world, they had that, yet they chose to share that love and glory when they said to one another, Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image. The perfectly happy and glorious triune Godhead chose to do this out of love and grace even though, even though the Father knew all along that Christ would be foreknown that he would be incarnate, as we're about to remember and celebrate next month, humbled, made manifest in the last times as the spotless sacrificial lamb who left his home in glory in heaven so that his perfect blood would be the perfect ransom for man's imperfection and sin. But it doesn't even end there. Because as we saw, God's big plan is even bigger than we can think of because of Christ's resurrection and glorification. So for us, that means thinking big, not according to the futile ways of our culture that you've been ransomed, that we've been ransomed from, whether it's North American or ethnic culture, whatever it is, you've been ransomed from them. So according to God's big plan for you, who through Christ are believers in God and will one day be glorified with him, 
when this grace that was to be yours will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? You need to think big and live large according to God's big plan. You need to think big about this big plan that was put in, this, in place by this big God. And as Peter says, set your hope fully on that. Not in your 80 plus or minus years on this little life, on this little ball of water. Because then you're not just living for what this world has to offer. You're living for something much bigger. There's this never-ending life that awaits you on the other side of heaven. Now that's living large. This means that reading your Bible and learning about God's big plan for you and responding to that in prayer suddenly becomes a greater priority than checking the notifications on your phone or getting to work to work hard first thing in the morning. The very cultural things that we pride ourselves in. Why? Because heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not, Jesus says. Suddenly, the way you budget and think about distributing your money becomes less about your own satisfactions and from what you think you deserve and becomes more about other people's needs and for God's glory, whether it's supporting your physical family or your true and spiritual family, which are your brothers and sisters in Christ, since that's the mark of the Christian, is generosity, whether it's regular and systematic giving to support the mission of your local church or missionaries whom you send, or maybe even random or spontaneous giving to supply the current need of those around you. This is all because we're all ransomed believers, been bought not by the choice of silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. We've been bought from the ways of our culture the ways of our fathers, the ways of this world, and we're together on the same mission to come out of this world. Yet right now, as we're in it, we tell people about God's big plan for them, for you and I. Even the way we think about spending our time becomes less about us and more about others. Because think about it. If God, the Father, Son, and Spirit knew, well, the Spirit predicted and Father foreknew that Christ would leave his perfect home and glory to share that with mere human beings who he knew were going to sin against him. If you think big and live large and, and, and with that thinking, how can we spend all our time with just the people who we enjoy and uh, enjoy perfect love and, and hang out with uh, our closest friends? This is something that I've been challenged with myself. Hey, we need to actually intentionally step out of our comfort zone in this life and spend time with people around us. Maybe it's fellow believers who want to learn more about God's big plan for them and for the world or with your unbelieving neighbors whether literally or the people around you who need to find out about God's big plan for them. Maybe even stepping out of your country to bring yourself or your family to go tell an unreached people about God's big plan for them. Any or all of these options require big faith and big hope in a big God because he has a big plan for you. That's what Peter's reasoning is here. We need to think big about this big plan and live largely in reverent fear of this big God who can do big things 
for this small world and this little life. So why not make it count? And God's big plan has many implications even for uh, the ransom believer as we live in this life. Starting with the fact that you've been ransomed from the futile ways of thinking and living so that you might move towards, okay, so from cultural, inherited, sinful ways to God's holy and perfect ways. That's why Peter quotes scripture here by saying, you shall be holy, for I, God, am holy. God's big plan for you requires you to have a big view of the Christian life, which means justification or being declared righteous, being ransomed by the blood of Christ is just the beginning of this glorious, massive plan for us, not the end. A lot of people say, oh, okay, I've prayed the prayer, I've, I've been saved, okay, God has a wonderful plan for my life, and it ends there. But no, we need to think big, as in think eternity, because this plan has been from eternity past, and this plan exceeds your life on this little earth. In fact, there is no end to this plan, because it is eternity. So we can't just relax today and say, I'm saved, cross the line through Jesus, so I get to go to heaven now. All the while, you have a hand reached out across the line to enjoy the futile ways of your culture, the futile ways of this world. This is the kind of view that I uh, had when, when, when people told me, uh, Jesus, by his blood, has saved you. And that's why I held on to these things of the world that my eyes wanted, my hands wanted, my body wanted, because I said, well, I get to go to heaven now and so I can enjoy these things sometimes. That's not what Peter is saying here. That's not what Jesus is telling us in his word. That's not a big view of God's big plan. Don't belittle God's plan here. Being ransomed from your futile ways means being ransomed to God's holy ways. This is why Puritan John Owen famously says, be killing sin before kills you. That's why Peter says suffering is only for a little while in verses 6 and 7. Why? Because this is so little compared to the glory. Like, think of the glory. Like, like I love the care and concern that people ask about my leg, and I think, man, that's, according to Peter, that this is so little. People get news of cancer and loved ones die. It's for a little while. There is way more glory ahead of this. And on the flip side, when you enjoy the things of this world, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, trust me, unbeliever, listen, and I plead to you this morning, come to Jesus, because that's not what's going to satisfy you. Nothing in this world can. There's not enough glory in this world to satisfy you. God has much bigger plans for you. God's big plan for you means that you need to kill sin and walk towards holiness. This is why Peter says in his second letter, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In this way, you will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
If we're to conduct ourselves in fear of what the Lord can do, as one sermon, as one pastor said last year, and it made me tremble before God's word, and says, how can you know that you're part of the redeemed and the elect if you're still holding on to your futile ways just because Jesus died for you? No, you need to be walking the other way because Jesus bought your holiness and you need to walk towards holiness. Don't belittle God's big plan for you. Rather, think big and live large in light of God's big plan for you, and that includes eternity because this has been from eternity past. So think big and live large according to God's big plan for you. So I encourage us this morning, think of the specific futile ways in your life today from your culture, from, your, from the world around you that you've been ransomed from. And maybe you're still hanging on to some of them. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. But Jesus bought you so that you won't be walking in some, but all towards his glory, all of your conduct, be holy. Consider how you can take steps forward to holiness. As we take a moment of silence here shortly, and as we sing these words as a response to God's big plan for you, who are believers through Christ in God. Teach us, Lord, to number our days on earth. Give us more wisdom in the secret heart that is truth in our inward being, Psalm 51 says, as you display amazing grace through Jesus Christ for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, from before all of time and before all of things, we come humbly as mere fleeting human beings in this little life, in this little world, and tremble at your word. And we thank you for your big plan for us that's centered on Christ so that you, Father, would receive greater glory as we, by your Spirit, are empowered to walk in holiness in this life. Help us to look for that glory that only comes through Jesus at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And help us to live for that glory, the glory that we will eventually share with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came for us and was risen raised from the dead for us so that we too might be glorified with him. And to you, God, be all the glory, honor, and praise for that. Help us to live accordingly. Help us to love accordingly. Help us to walk accordingly. In your name, amen.